thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to study. We ask you to guide and lead us and, and bless the activities that we're doing as a church and as we reach out to people and, and just ask for your spirits leading tonight in your son's name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 5, the first, part, first 10 verses of this was about the, the vineyard that God had built and he made it, made it a wall around it and, and it produced wild, wild grapes and he put a curse on, the, you know, curse on the people because of it. And still starting at 11, Woe to them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink and continue until night till wine inflame them. The harp and the viola, the tabret, the, the pipe, the wine, and are in their feast, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Therefore my people are gone into captivity, because they have no knowledge, they, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself, and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and, and he that rejoices shall descend in it. And the mean men shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. All right, so here Isaiah is continuing the woes and the curses, and he starts out with, Woe to them that rise early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink and continue until night, till wine inflames them. And this is a picture of somebody who is, their whole life is centered around alcohol. Strong drink, intoxicating drink is what this means. And one of the things you have to remember is in those days, wine basically came in two different varieties, basically just grape juice. <laughs> All right, and then to varying levels of intoxicating uh, wine as we have in today's society where we have grape juice, we have you know, low, low alcohol wines, we have higher, and then we have the strong alcohol that the, really the only purpose to drink the strong alcohol is to get drunk. And that's what this one's referring to, the strong intoxicating alcohol. And they had it way back as far as back as we can can place it. So sometimes when you're reading about wine, they're just talking about basically grape juice. So little to no fermentation. And but this one is very clearly talking about the purpose of getting drunk. And this is something that we have even in our day, people that are so addicted to alcohol that they start drinking in the morning and they drink all the way through until they collapse at night in their beds or wherever they collapse and not always in bed when you're when you're when you're completely drunk but that's what it's saying woe to them that follow that seek after that that are going after it and they continue all the way until night till the wine inflame them basically they get drunk just a fancy way to saying they get drunk they've lost they've lost control of their senses and this is something that we have it's been a problem Noah, after the flood, became a vine husbandman. He planted a vineyard, and one of the first things he did was get drunk. And we see being, getting drunk even before, before that. And, you know, I kind of excuse Noah in one sense because I think about all that he lost. You know, when he, when he went on the ark, the, land, the population was very large, millions, billions, possibly even trillions, depending on how many people were born and, and everything, with lots of knowledge, and he gets off the ark, and it's his his family only. And probably lots of lost knowledge. 
Because I think about this, even sitting in our room, you know, if we, if we were the only ones here, you know, all of us can do lots of different things, but could we do everything? Okay, I can build a computer if I had the parts, but I can't build the parts to a computer. Okay, uh, mechanics can do a lot of the fixing of things, but they can't necessarily uh, get the metals to, and create the alloys to make the metals and then forge the, the parts that they need and, and all of that. Well, he had whatever he took on the oh, ark. Yeah, on the boat, but still. And who knows what he took on the ark, but still, yeah. there would have been a lot of lost information, a lot of lost skill. Because even if he brought in sets of encyclopedias and how-tos, you can only do so much with those. I've tried working on an automobile at times using a book. I get the job done about five times longer than it should take, but I can get the job done but with a how-to book, usually. But then I hand it over to a mechanic, and he has it, he has it running in you know, no time at all because he knows what to do. And so this is what happened in, for Noah. And we see here God putting a curse. And why do people drink strong drink? Usually to try to forget. Try to forget something, whatever that something is. And their, their plan is just to forget until they get so addicted to it, they're just drinking all the time for drinking purposes. And, uh, and here he is. And then in verse 12, we get a picture of a party. The harp, the viola, the, the, the tambourine, the pipes, the wine are in their feast, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operations of his hands. In other words, they're having great big parties. They're having music. They're having alcohol. They're, they're having a good old time, at least in their minds. But they're not thinking about God. And they're not seeing what God would want them to do out of all of this. And usually when somebody gets drunk, they end up doing dumb things. Things that they would never do when they were sober, things that they regret doing if they remember. Uh, I remember sometimes talking to people when I was working in the restaurants and they'd go, yeah, I had a great time last night. I'd go, yeah, what'd you do? I'd go, no, I don't know, I got drunk and can't remember a thing. And I'd go, but you had a good time. You're sure you had a good time? Oh yeah, I had a fantastic time. I'm going, okay, but uh, I never want to get to the place where I don't remember what I did. Uh, because usually that means you ended up doing something that you regret doing, even if you just made a fool out of yourself. And that would be the best that you could do when not remember how to do it, you know, make a fool out of yourself. Because sometimes people really do dumb things when they get so blitzed or drunk that they can't remember what they've done. Uh, and that's not a good thing at all. And that's what Isaiah is saying in just these two verses, <laughs> whoa. And we've said this before, this is the thing that God condemns is being drunk. He doesn't, he doesn't condemn drinking, though it's probably not the wisest thing in the world to drink, but he definitely condemns being drunk. And, and this is something that's very important. And for people who can't drink without getting drunk, then they shouldn't drink. And this is something very important. And then he goes into this, verse 13, therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dries up with thirst. And this is the picture of people that are not following God. And this is a theme for Isaiah that he has oftentimes, is that there is a hunger for the word, that people are not filling themselves with God's word. And for me, I love God's word. I try to get as much of it as possible. And I can't imagine going days without reading God's and studying God's word. And yet, I know there are people out there that do, and they fall into this category. 
Woe to his people because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished. They're not studying. And we all have met people who have lots of worldly knowledge. They can tell you all about what's going on in the world and even predict some things that are going on in the world, but they don't know anything about God. And that's what, these, what he's saying here. Your, your wise men, your honorable people don't know. They don't know God. Why? Because they're not taking time to get to know him. And this was the purpose God created man for, was so that he could fellowship with us and, and commune with us. Adam and Eve, in the cool of the evening, got to walk with God. And I can't, I would love that to actually physically walk with God, which meant it was Jesus that they were walking with, and be taught directly by God face to face. What a blessing that would be. Now, we all have the Holy Spirit in us who teaches us. And this is so important. When I taught the class on how to study the Bible, if you remember, the most important tool I said for studying the Bible is the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He teaches us. He directs us. And he will give us truth. Now, and I've shared with you, when I was young, I had many questions about the Bible before I really knew how to study the Bible. And I went to the Holy Spirit. I said, what does this mean? And he told me certain, certain things that I questioned and what they meant. And then later on, when I learned to study the Bible, lo and behold, the Holy Spirit was right. Amazing, isn't that you know, amazing? The Holy Spirit knew, knew what he was teaching. But now, instead of just saying, this is, what I was, this is what God showed me, now I can say, this is why. And it's important to be able to understand, this is why. It's good to have the Holy Spirit teach you, this is what, this is what you to believe, but it's much better to get to the, this is why. This is why we believe what we believe. And the faith is a great starting place. But faith will only hold you so long when people attack it. And so he says, my people are in captivity because they have no knowledge. They're famished and their multitude dries up with thirst. And Jesus with the woman at the well said, you know, you're gonna, if you drink of the water that you're drawing, you're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink of the water I can give you, you'll never thirst again. And this is one of the things we need to be looking at. God wants to give us food and water spiritually to fill us. And he created us with that need. He created us with his, the need for him. And nothing else will satisfy. Nothing. We may get excited about new, something new and exciting, but how long does it take to get tired of it? You, know, you buy that car that you've always wanted or think you always wanted, and you're real happy with it until it gets the first scratch. Until, until the first payment, maybe. <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever it might be, whatever it might be that all of a sudden it's not, as, it's not as new and wonderful as it used to be. And maybe that lasts for a year or two. Who knows? I don't think it's ever going to last that long. But who knows? Maybe it lasts that long. But eventually, it's going to stop satisfying. You build the perfect dream home that you've been always wanting. Furnish it just the way you want it, you know, with all the right appliances. And, and you're happy for a little while. And eventually, even that will die down. What does it mean there, in the first part, to have no knowledge? No knowledge. They're not, no knowledge of God, no understanding of God. of God. Right. That's why it goes on, the honorable of famished and their multitude is, is thirsty. So it's all just, this is a very much uh, poet, poetic. And they're poetic in, uh, in the Hebrew is to keep repeating something. This right now is where, where his people are then and pretty much all time. Pretty much all time at this point. Uh, because this is now going back to basically where he's at now. His people were famished. They, they weren't following God. They were, 
not seeking after God, as good a king as Uzziah was, the people didn't seem to follow after, after him. And after Uzziah died, they go into a whole series of kings that aren't so, aren't so good. And many times these kings would start a revival, but it never really took hold of people's hearts. You know, they, they did the games. You know, well, the king's all for us going to church, so we'll, we'll, we'll go to church, we'll, we'll go to the synagogue, we'll, we'll, we'll do our things that we're supposed to, but when, when we get home, we're going to go worship our idols. Okay, we're going to make the show. And even in our, day, in our day and age, there's many Christians who are, or quote-unquote Christians, who are doing the show. I go to church on Sunday morning. I, I look like I'm worshiping God. I stay awake during the sermon, so it looks like I'm paying attention. But I'm really thinking about the football game that I'm missing or the, or the race that's getting ready to start you know, as soon as service is over or the baseball game that I'm missing or whatever it might be. I'm not thinking about, you know, I'm just staying awake so everybody thinks that I'm being righteous. And that's the way a lot of people are. Let me go to church. Let me put in my time. Make everybody think that I'm doing good. You know, if I'm really, really doing it and not following God, I'll, I'll make sure I read my Bible each morning and I'll, and I'll open my day with five minutes of praying, prayer and say hi to God and I'll read, read for five minutes. And I can tell everybody I pray and read my Bible. But no knowledge, no understanding, no, no real thirst. And this is something when you really get to know God, there's a thirst. You want to get to know him. You want to be able to seek after him. And this is one of the things I'm finding. The more, the more I listen to speakers, the more I read my Bible, the more I want to listen to speakers, and the more I want to read my Bible because it's creating a thirst that only God can fulfill, and it's getting that knowledge, getting that knowledge to go beyond that. And so he's saying, you have a choice, basically. You can go live your life in a party or you can seek after God. And that really is the two options that we have. If we're not living for God, we are doing a party of some sort, whether it's a drunken party or sports party or hobby party. You know, if our focus isn't on God, we are doing something that basically could be called a party, even if it's a workaholic. The workaholic loves working, and they're treating that almost like a narcotic or a drug and saying, I'm going to spend all my time working because I'm going to get whatever it is they get out of it. Uh, and I've been there. I, you know, tried to get there, and I never was satisfied. It never was good enough. It never fulfilled. And this is what he's saying. Are you going to party? It started out with a drunken party, but it also goes into this whole idea of, am I seeking after God, or am I seeking after the world? And if I seek after the world, I'm never going to be fulfilled, and I go into captivity. In this case, he's talking about physical captivity, but we can also go into a spiritual captivity. When all I do is agree with the world, I do the world, things the world does, I act the way the world acts, and I fall into a spiritual captivity and forget God. And this is where a Christian goes backslidden and starts trying to be part of the world, or just isn't training themselves. And this is something that is very serious. If we don't actively try to follow God, the world will suck us into its, its realm. And it's really hard as we do this truth project and we learn a biblical worldview it should be striking us how different the biblical worldview is to everything we might believe and definitely everything that we get fed from the TV and the movies and, and books and our friends that aren't Christians. And unfortunately, sometimes our friends that are Christians feed us the world's point of view. And so this is no knowledge, no understanding, no thirst. And you know, this is something we have to be careful of. How, what is our advice that we give somebody biblically based 
or is it from the world's point of view? And something as simple as you're talking to your, a really good friend and they're telling you about how hard their marriage is and all of this and you know, they're, they're having all these different problems and usually the first thing people will say is, well, you should just leave him, and, you know, leave him or her and, and go find somebody you're more compatible with because that's what the world teaches us. And if we're not careful, that's what will come out of our mouth instead of, well, let's see what God would have you do. Let's, let's see, you made vows, of those, were those vows correct? Did you really love the person? Were you, did you mean these things when you said them? And encourage them to go back to where they started from. And that's God's call to us all the time. Remember, <laughs> remember, we've kind of covered this so many times where it says, remember, remember, remember when this happened, remember when this happened, why? Because we tend to forget. We forget all that God has done for us and we remember the bad. And the, the statement that was, that was said uh, at the Truth Project, and I don't remember where he got it from because he was, I've heard it in other places, we remember the things we're not are supposed to forget and forget the things we're supposed to remember. And we do that all the time as human beings if we're not careful. And we forget God's word, we forget what God says about things. And you know, it's really simple to do because we surround ourselves so often with the world. And and I'm finding it even harder. The more I get rid of TV, and the more I'm offended when I watch the TV. Yeah. It's kind of an amazing thing. The less I watch TV, the more I'm offended when I try to watch TV because it just seems so drastically bad to me when I do watch it. And so I'm getting to where I don't even hardly watch it at all. I watch my Christian movies or something when I want to watch, the, watch a movie. Uh, verse 14, therefore hell has enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. Okay, and the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the, the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. So here it says, hell has enlarged its, uh, herself or itself, and opened its mouth without measure. And it says, and their glory and their multitude and their pomp, he that rejoices shall descend into it. And basically this is a picture of even good people who aren't perfect are going to end up in hell. You know, how many times do we think of, like verse 15, the mean shall be brought down, okay? There are so many people that believe that hell is for bad people. And in one sense, that is true, but the problem is we have to define bad by God's standards. And that's anybody who doesn't have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is a bad person. And so that means many, many good people are going to be in hell because they don't know Jesus. And this is something we've got to be able to communicate to the lost loved ones and lost people in our life. You know, you're never good enough to go to heaven because God's standard is perfection. The heart is deceitfully wicked, who can know it? So anybody who even thinks they're good is deceiving themselves and this goes for Christians. Now we can do better because we let God crucify our life and sanctify us but you know, in the very inner part of our being, our, the innermost part of our heart still wants to do evil, even when God has worked out a lot of the sin out of our life. And if you don't believe it, just ask God to show you, and he'll show you very quickly how sinful you are, and he'll let you see how sinful you are. Because they did that with wisdom, too. They... Wisdom is almost always pictured as a, as a feminine. That, though, makes a lot of sense to me, because wisdom is something that brings... Uh, understanding and, and honor to the people and usually the women are the ones that tend to build up and edify because that is the way God created them is to to love and to nurture so in the case of wisdom I 
kind of understand why it's pictured as a woman. Good and bad people will, will fill hell. And that's what he's saying here in these two verses. You know, even your, your people that you think are good are going to go to hell if they're not seeking after God. They're not thirsting after God. They're not hungering after God. They don't have God living in them and listening to him and, and giving, speaking in their ear. And this is very important. All human beings are born sinners, except for Jesus, because he did not have a human father. He was born of the seed of the woman. And from what we understand from scriptures, the sin nature is generated through the male line. Eve sinned first, but she was deceived. Adam chose to, to sin and therefore has the greater consequence attached to his, his sin. And he is the one, he's the one through which the sin nature is passed. Jesus was born without sin nature because he did not have a human father. He had a human mother, but not a human father. And therefore did not get the sin nature. Because if he had the sin nature, he would not have been the perfect lamb who could die for our sin. He would have been blemished. And all people are born with a sin nature and they will sin because they have a sin nature. All right, and very clearly, and it's been said so many times, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Okay, we have no choice but to sin without God. Now, once we bring God into the equation, he crucifies the flesh. He can crucify the sin nature. He comes and dwells, his, dwells in us. And now we have the choice and the power to live uh, without sin. And we still make the wrong decisions most of the time. <laughs> But we have at least him indwelling us and crucifying the flesh and saying, okay, God, I have the capability of. Now, I don't know anybody who's ever done it. As far as we know, Enoch and Elijah are the two closest people who have ever let God work the sin nature out of them, and then they didn't have to die. They were translated or raptured from the, from the earth, and they did not have to die. But those are the only two people we know of that have ever lived so close to doing what God wanted them that he said, well, come on home. You don't have to go through death. Now, we are looking at rapture, but not because we're perfect, but just because God's saying, okay, well, the, end of, the end of time is coming, and I'm going to take my, my church out, and then we will be snatched out, raptured, okay, um, caught away, and all those different words that, that were out there, because people will tell you, well, there's no, no, the rapture, the word rapture is not in the Bible, and they're right, the word is not in the Bible, caught away is, which is in the Latin rapturo, which is where they come up with rapture, <laughs> okay? So they take the, the Greek word, and the Latin translates it into rap, rapturo, which then is translated into rapture, which means to snatch away, to, cap, to catch away from, where, from what you're going into. And so here, that's where that word, so if you're ever talking to somebody, well, that's not in there, you'll go, you're right, it's not. But, 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 it, but it is, says we're caught away, which is what <laughs> rapture means. So, uh, but it says in hell, the great and the, and, the, and the low will both be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. In hell, everybody will acknowledge that God is God. At the white throne judgment, every knee will bow. Even before the white throne judgment, every knee will bow. Those of us who are believers, we're going to bow with great honor and, and great, great haste bowing before our king. 
the rest of the world that's headed to hell will probably be forced to bow. Satan himself will bow before God at the white throne judgment and, and, de yes, and declare that he is Lord just before he's thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? He has no option. He will bow. Every knee, it says in the scripture, will bow. And it says also in the, in the scriptures that when we see Satan, we're going to marvel at, at, and they will say, is this the one that made the nations tremble? You know, I, when, when I hear something like that, I kind of think back to the Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and them are in, the, in, the, in his chambers and you know, you know, looking at this great big terrible thing and the, the curtain gets pulled back and it's like, this is who we're afraid of? That's the picture you know, of what Satan will be when we finally see him. That's the one? That's what, that's what made the nations tremble for, for all of time? and he will be forced to bow. The, the third of the angels have, that, that rebelled with him will bow. I think that's a good part. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got to always remember, hell was created for the fallen angels, not for man. Man is just there because we chose to rebel and follow Satan, or at least Adam and Eve did, and the rest of us have fallen because of that, that fall. But hell was created for the angels, not for man. And we are just there because we reject God or the ones who go there, not we. <laughs> but those who reject him will be there because they reject God and they will be sent to eternal punishment. And so then when, when, when God made hell, like you said, it was for the created. It was designed for the angels. Now he knew the man was going to sin and all that. So yes, in, one, in a very roundabout way, yes, hell was made for man also. But it's primary punishment according to scriptures was for the angels okay god knew that man would sin and, and reject him but it was not hell was not created for man and as i've said many times hell is not the devil's kingdom okay he's a prisoner in hell just as everybody else it was it was created to be a prison not his kingdom okay so i thought he was the king over most people do That's how the world, most Christians, most Christians portray it that way. They, they have this Hades mentality where Hades is the god of the underworld, you know, the ruler of the underworld. And no, hell is a prison for the uh, Lucifer and the demons. It is not his kingdom. He is an inmate. You know, so... He is, not, he is not the anti-God. He is not God's equal. And I, I bring this out frequently because so often people will think, well, the devil is God's opposite. No, he's a created being who God could just eliminate if he so wanted to. He uses Satan as a tool for now, and then he's going to cast him into hell for eternity. For, for now, in this period of time of earth uh, and mankind, he's a tool. He's being used to test Christians. He's being a tool to prove to people that there is a God, even though he's trying to make people think there isn't a God. But God is saying, you're on a chain. You're on a leash. Anything he wants to do, he has to ask for permission. And that is not just for Christians. He has to ask for permission to hurt any of God's creation because otherwise he is so destructive and desires death that he would kill everything. He has to ask for permission. 
If he could do it on his own, his goal would be to kill all mankind. If he had free will to do what he wanted, the earth would have been done 6,000 years ago because he'd have just killed all men. It would have been easy back then because he had just a couple of people, they're all gone and, and God's kingdom is gone. What about the idea that, you know, some people that uh, aren't believers are caught up in uh, Satanism or whatever. Uh, I've always been taught that if they open the door, the devil will come in. He can indwell them, but he's still going to have only so much room. He still can't, even if you, they've invited him in, without God allowing it, he can't kill them. So in the extreme cases, God is permitting this. God permits much more than we would ever ever fathom. God, why would you permit so much evil? Why would you allow this evil to go this far? Because of free will and, and, and our volition, he allows a lot of things to happen. But he still always holds Satan. And there are consequences for what we do. Okay, But you know, if it's not time for you to die, you're not going to die. You may end up a quadriplegic or wishing you were dead. So it's not going. It's not say go do something stupid because you don't because you know because you're not going to die because God's not saying because number one you don't know whether it's your time, but there is always consequences for our sins, and sometimes those consequences may be that God says okay, it's it's your turn to come home. It says a lot about our free will and uh, you know our choices. And God gives us a lot of a lot of room in our free will, but He also restricts those to a degree. And this is just it. We don't know, and it's, we can't second-guess God's uh, sovereign plan. But God is sovereign. Nothing happens without his permission for it to happen. And Job is that great example for us, especially as believers, you know, that Satan had to ask for permission to harm Job. Now, God gave him a lot of room to harm Job. That's hard to understand, but God has a reason for what he does. Okay, Romans 8:28. There, uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God, and so all things work together for good. We may not like it, we may not enjoy what He's doing to us, but eventually it will work together for good because God knows what is going to happen in the future. And sometimes, and and I know it's hard to believe, but usually when we go through a hard time. It strengthens us for something down the road, when we, especially when we pass the test. It strengthens us for the next time we face an issue. Or it strengthens us to be able to comfort somebody else who goes through something similar. And that's what we face in the middle of any trial is we have a choice. Am I going to turn to God and be comforted, this whole knowledge and understanding of God? Or am I going to turn away from God, which leads me into the world's way of doing it, which is be workaholism, alcoholism, drug, drug abuse, uh, cutting ourselves, whatever, you know, Satan, Satan worship, whatever it might be, you know, a cult, anything that turns away from God and takes us away from God or turns us to God. And every time we go through a trial, that is where we're at. What am I going to choose? Am I going to choose to honor God or turn away from God? And and it's not easy sometimes. I understand. Believe me, I understand how hard those trials can be because it's tough. And this is when it comes down to the fact, do I believe Romans 8.28? Do I believe that God's sovereign? Do I believe that God has a plan for me? When I truly believe those things, I will turn to God. If I don't believe those things, I probably will turn away from God. And this is why every test is a trial to see what do you really believe? 
as the tagline for Truth Project is, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Okay, and God's going to test you on that. God, you believe that all things work together for good, so bad things are going to seem to come into your life that says, how can this be good? And the flesh will go, I don't understand how it can be good. And then your spirit should be coming along and say, but God promised it's for good, so we're going to just trust him and not trust what we think and what we believe. And this is why all of this comes down to where are we at with God? And every test is just that. Are we going to believe him or not? When, when he tells us to do something and we start doing it, and all of a sudden things get hard, we have to go, okay, God, I know you told me to do this. I'm going to keep doing it. And this will always happen, whether it's you decide to go to a new Bible study. He asks you to t start tithing. He asks you to start reading your Bible every day or pray more or you, you're looking to love somebody. Something is going to be really hard to try to block whatever he's asked you to do. And that can be something that's quite obvious. And that's usually when you just turn to God and say, God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to follow you. And oftentimes we just find ourselves walking the wrong direction and go, how did I get here? Probably because I wasn't spending enough time with God. And that's, you know, the saying is that the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible is very true. Sin will keep us from the Bible. Sin will keep us from church. Sin will keep us from hanging, hanging out with other Christians. Why? Because when we're living a sinful lifestyle, we feel guilty when we're around anything that's righteous and holy. And the last thing we want to do is feel guilty. Now, our guilt should to be conviction and make me go to repent and get rid of it. But our initial fleshly response to any of that is to feel guilty and say, stay away from me. I don't like feeling guilty. And this is what Satan will try to do to us. He'll try to make us guilty. The Holy Spirit will try to convict us to get us to repent. And Satan is trying to condemn us. And this is very important. I can't figure it out. It took me this long to really to pay attention and not push him aside. All of my younger years, I mean, I did some stupid things, you know. I never thought about God. And most of that is that so many people do not get into the Word of God. They don't get taught. They don't think about God, like you said, and then, you know, make a big mess out of their life. And, but, you know, the more we're in his Word, the more he's going to keep us from sin, and the more he's going to give us right decisions. And then the more we make right decisions, the more people are attracted to, to God because they see God being lived out in us. And that's what people really want to see. They want to see God lived out. They want to see that people love them. And you know, it is so easy to attack people and to tear them down, especially if they're hard to love. And you know, we all know people that are hard to love. And what is the first thing we, you know, we want to do oftentimes when we see them is attack them before they attack or, or respond to the way. And God is saying, we need to love one another. We need to love those who are unlovable or hard to love. I love what Bob says. And if we're not judging, we're not going to attack somebody. And this is the thing that's important. But we need to look at it. We need to look at ourselves sometimes, you know, when, especially after we've had a hard time with somebody and going, okay, God, what was it? Why did I do that? Why did I react Am I, you know, to that and say, I need help not to react to that person in the future? Because we could drive people away from God real easy. 
And there's lots of people who say they won't come to church because of the people in the church. Now, that is really a dumb reason, but I also understand it. You know, it because people are who you see on the church, and they're the ones you're going to have to be around. And there are people in the church that are hard to love. There are people that don't deserve to be loved. There are people that aren't even Christians that come to church. But our job is to show them as much of God's love as possible. Jesus showed Judas Iscariot great love. You know, and you've got to think, Jesus picked 12 key disciples, and one of them, he said, was a devil. And they, and they, he had to know when he picked Oh, he would have known that he picked the devil. Yeah. yeah so. Now. He still loved him. And he still loved him. He still gave him every opportunity. And picture this. When Jesus was at the Last Supper and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, the 11 didn't all of a sudden point their finger at Judas. They were all saying, is it I? And Judas was the last one that they would have picked because as far as outward appearances, he looked like the perfect disciple. You know, there's nothing negative said about him up until that point when they said, you know, the devil entered into him and he did, you know, and he was taking money out of the community purse that he was in charge of. But they didn't recognize that before. They did not know that before. All they knew is that here's somebody who looks like he is a good Christian and he's the one that ended up portraying Jesus. It's funny, all the movies that you see portray Judas as, you know, dark hair, scholarly. But, you know, unfortunately, in our walk with God, usually the people that are going to harm us the most are not the dark, easily picked out person. They're the person, and think about this in your own life, who has hurt you the most? Is it the people in the world that you expect to hurt you? No, because you expect, the, you expect them to be idiots. You expect them to be against God. It's that Christian who all of a sudden, or the person you think is a Christian, who all of a sudden lashes out at you or attacks you for no apparent reason. And it's like, those are the ones that hurt because you don't expect it from another Christian. Now, we probably should. It's what my statement is, when the lost person sins and, and does bad things, I'm never surprised, but I'm also not surprised when a Christian is sinful and, and, and does things that hurt. And because I have that attitude, I don't usually get dramatically hurt by people because, unfortunately, it may be kind of a negative way of looking at it, I expect them to be sinners. Okay? Now, I am sadder when a Christian does that because they shouldn't, but it's not something that comes out of the, you know, totally out of the blue to me because I know that they're still sinners. Now, when they do right, I rejoice because that, they're following God. But if they do wrong, I start praying for them because I know I've done it myself so many times. I'm a sinner just like they are, and I do, I do things that hurt people. And it's not always on purpose. It's sometimes just the flesh takes over and, and, you're, and, you're, and you're there. But again, what is our attitude? If we truly understand that all people are sinners, including saved people, then we will treat each other quite differently than if we're expecting a saved person to do the right thing all the time. Because that's when we get upset, is when we get blindsided by some, something. Expectations, you know, especially false expectations, can hurt us. And if, you know, if you're expecting a Christian to always do the right thing, that's a false expectation because it's not going to happen. You know, one thing I had to get through my head, uh, you know, where it says uh, the greatest commandment is love God, but then after that, to love your neighbor. And when you think about it, that's the greatest commandment. That's even over, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not covet, all the others, do not lie. More important than that, love somebody. Because that encompasses all the others. If you love somebody, you're not going to lie. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to kill them. 
because you're loving them. You want what's best for them. So that's why Jesus said that those two encompass all the law. And if we can love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and, and strength, that's going to cover even loving others because we're going to start loving others because we love God. So the first and primary one, love God completely. If I love God completely, it's going to wash over into loving others. Loving others no matter what they do. Yeah. No matter what they do, no matter what they say. And again, the expectation has to be that I'm just going to love them. Agape love. I choose to love them even when they don't deserve it. Even when their very presence makes my skin crawl, I need to love them. But that is where true love comes. It's real easy to love people who usually love you in return. Okay, because they're going to be nice to you. They're going to usually say good things, and you can excuse them when they do something wrong because in general they, they like you and they're nice to you. The hard one to love is that person that just every time you see them, they say something, do something, act a certain way that irritates you, and that's when love has to really be developed. And that's when true love comes out. Jesus loved Judas Iscariot, even though he was going to betray him. He didn't treat him any different. He didn't all, all through this. Now, keep your eye on Judas. He's going to betray me at the end of four years. Just You guys keep your eye on him. He's, he, he's, a, he's the uh, snake in you know, the, the, the wolf in, 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 in sheep's clothing. He's the one that's going to really get after us. He never pointed him out. He never singled him out. He gave him the same jobs that he gave all the other disciples. Why? Because love was hopefully going to win him and draw him. Even though he knew it wasn't going to happen, he gave him every opportunity to not have an excuse. Because if, if Jesus had always pointed him out, you know, then, he, then when he turned him in, see, yeah, I'm just fulfilling what you said. But when he turned against him, it was such a shock because he had always been treated the same way always been treated well, always been built up. And this is why we need to be very careful as we reach out to other people, whether they're Christians that do this to us, or those who say they're Christians and may or may not be, or the lost world. How do we respond when they are obnoxious? And you know, usually these people are being obnoxious just to see if we're going to be loving them like we say we do. If I do this, what are you going to do? And when we react the way they expect us to negatively, they can go, well, see, that's why I'm not in that church. That's not why I'm in that fellowship, because they really don't love me. They, they, they're just looking for a reason to get, get angry at us. But when we love them and show God's love to them, it blows their mind. And they may not trust it at first. They may have to do this three, four, five, six, seven dozen times before they truly believe that they are loved. Because it's easy to believe that you're not loved. All of us have been there at some time, even with, between us and God, where we just think, God, you don't love me because I've done so many bad things, you know, when we get pulled away from God's word and all of a sudden we have to kind of be, remember, God loves me. He loves me no matter what. If I'm the prodigal son and I've gone on and lived a riot, riotous life and, and blown, my, blown my wealth and my, my health and whatever else, and I come back to him, he's there, arms open to love us. That's what he wants from us. When that person that's hard to love comes across our path, do we reach out and say, oh, you're I'm so glad to see you. I'm happy you're here. Now, inward, we might be having to say this by faith. I am so happy you're here today. And inward, I'm churning because I know that something's going to happen. But you know, you start speaking these things and start confessing what God wants you to do. And God's going to build that love. 
God's definitely happy. Whether we're happy they're here or not, God is happy. And if they're here, they might hear something. They might be edified enough to finally turn their heart over to God. And, you know, we need to be looking at whether it's our neighbor, you know, or a family member that we have trouble dealing with. We need to learn to forgive and love them. And it's not easy. I know, believe me, I know it's not easy. But that goal. Now, is that person going to become your very best friend? Probably not. Well, let's say they might. You know, but will they be originally when you first start doing this? No, probably not. You're doing it out of faith. You're just loving them because God said to love them. You're loving God. <laughs> you're letting God, God love them through you. Not, I wouldn't say necessarily God in them because it may be somebody but not without God in them. Because we're to do this with even the lost. Yeah. We're to show God's love to them, and they don't have God in them necessarily. We're letting God love them through us. And if it's a bro fellow brother or sister, we definitely should be loving the God that's in them. Even if they don't want God in them? Even if they think they don't want God in them. Even if they don't believe in him, we love them. God still loves them. When God on the white throne judgment sends people into the lake of fire, he's still going to love them. But God is in all of us, even if we're... No. That would get you in. God is everything and in everything. God is in those who invite them in this. This is why when somebody is lost, they are dead. They are dead spiritually. They, they only have a body and a soul. And the soul will go, go, and the body when it's resurrected and the soul will be sent to hell. When we become a Christian, God indwells us. He quickens our spirit and fellowships with our spirit, and, we, and he lives in us. Now, God loves everybody, okay, but he is not in everybody. He has to be invited into him. Right. Only those that are accepted have God living in them. Because that's what that emptiness in the, in the lost person is, is that they have an empty spot where God is the one who's supposed to be filling it. And so he's not indwelling in him. Because you start getting into God being in everybody, then you take it to the next day. God is in everything, and now you're into full-fledged pantheism. So right, we're not polytheism, but pantheism. God is in everything. He created everything. He is the master of everything. He is the sovereign of everything. But he does not indwell everything. Okay? Uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke that fellowship in all of human kind from that point on without turning to God lives in broken fellowship with God or no fellowship with God. He does not indwell them because of Adam and Eve's sin. And that is when when they sinned, they died spiritually. Basically, man is supposed to be three parts, body, soul, and spirit. When man sinned, the spirit was dead. And basically, for all practical purposes and intents, every person born since Adam and Eve has been born dead, dead spiritually. Uh, they have animation, they have physical life, they have a soul that gives them personality, but no spiritual connection with God. They, that, part, that part of them is dead. And when they we accept, they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, God comes into them, quickens us, which is the word that means make alive, and he makes the spirit alive, makes us a new creation that is now spiritually attuned because he, create, he quickens and, and, and gives us a resurrected spirit. And then we become three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Okay? Very technical stuff that I don't like to get into, but we do need to understand it. Yeah.
Well, so that's why the people do that. Some of the people really do evil things because they don't have a spirit. They don't have a spirit in them that checks them. All they have is a, the soul yeah. and a body that has every desire to do evil. That's the well, even even Christians, if they don't let God crucify the spirit, the 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 the, the flesh, will do the, some evil things quite often. Anybody who does not know God is dead inside, and you can see it a lot of times in people's eyes. Well, there's just this emptiness in their soul. There's nothing there. They are spiritually dead. They have no real life, and this is why. Many times we can tell who a Christian is because there's life. And that life, you know, even if it's been pushed down because of their sin and everything, they still have life because God is indwelling them. He may not have as much charge in their life as he wants to have because of them blocking his, his activity in their life and not allowing him. Well, if that would mean that they never had him. That would, yeah. Now, if they're his and they never come back, he'll take their life and he'll take them. Yes. But, but that gets you in that whole area. You cannot lose eternal life. And I've said this many times. If you have eternal life, you are eternally saved. Okay? You cannot lose it. You cannot throw it away. You cannot get rid of it. Otherwise, it would not be eternal life. Okay? But the very words themselves tell us that you can't lose it. And then the rest of the Bible supports that. Now, there's all kinds of verses that say that you may not have had it. Okay? Jesus himself, and one of the things that I think is the scariest, one of the scariest sets of verses is, depart from me, I never knew you. Okay? And then he lists all kinds of religious activities that they did. And if you were living with them, you would have thought they were Judas. Hey, you know, who's the best disciple? Judas. <laughs> Yeah, Judas is, we trust him, he's got the money bag, uh, he's always where Jesus is, he's, he's, he's never saying the wrong things, he's always doing the right things until he betrays Jesus. Okay, never knew him. Had every opportunity to really know him, he actually got to see him and be personally taught by Jesus and still rejected him. And you know, how many people have you heard, well, if I saw Jesus, I'd believe, no, you wouldn't. If you won't believe now, you wouldn't have believed because you would have been Judas. Okay? Uh, and sometimes we have this whole this mentality that, you know, if I just lived back, you know, in the first century and I saw Jesus, well, you, if you believed him, you probably would believe him then. If you don't believe him, you wouldn't believe him then either. So this is that whole thing about this. And then this verse, this section after it talks about hell says in verse 16, but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. The Lord is holy, shall be sanctified in his righteousness. God is going to be exalted. Always. Always going to be exalted. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God, and God will be exalted. It may take a long roundabout way for him to be exalted, but he gets exalted. And I love that. I love that thing that God will be exalted. All things work together for good. Even if it takes a long roundabout way to get there, he, he is going to get his way. And again, it's a picture of the tapestry that God is weaving for us out of this life. And we only see it from the backside with all the knots and the hanging threads and and it looks like a mess, but when we see it from the other side, we're going to go, oh, what a beautiful picture that is. Oh, what a depressing picture of this, this person who went to hell, this little dark spot on the, 
on the tapestry, or this big dark spot on the tapestry, a whole bunch of people that went to hell, you know, that, that were in the dark, not, not part of the light. And we don't know what all God's doing with this tapestry, but we know it's his will. And he gets his will, even though he gives us some free will. And believe me, I've oftentimes struggled with how our free will and God's sovereignty match up. And I don't know how it is. That's something I'm leaving up to God because if I could understand it, I'd be God and I'm not God. So I'll let God figure out how, how, the, how it works out. The only thing I know is I seem to have free will and God is definitely sovereign. He, he makes whatever he wants happen. And so I seem to have free will. The Bible seems to indicate that I have free will. Whosoever will can accept God. Okay? And so somewhere in there we have some free will. How that fits in with God's sovereignty, I don't know. And I don't think I'll ever know. Because it's something beyond anything I can comprehend. How God can be absolute sovereign and I can have some free will and make choices, I don't know. Uh, and it's not just he made his decision by knowing what I was going to do. <laughs> that may be part of it. But it's not all of it, because otherwise he's not sovereign. I am. It's my, it's my decision that, that forced him into something, and that's not the way God works. He is sovereign. He is master. That's another interesting point there in the verse that says, if God let us holy shall be sanctified. We're here at a stage of sanctification. Right. Sanctification. Be, being set aside. Being made holy. Yeah. It says he's going to be set, set aside. He's going to be made holy. And this is literally to the world. When he sits on the throne at the white throne judgment, every knee will bow. Every knee. Now, some of us will be around the, around the white throne in, in, in the stands, and we're going to be bowing our knee willingly. Others are going to have angels pushing them down to their knees, just as any conquered army of that day did. Every conquered nation bowed to the king that conquered them. And whether they wanted to or not, sometimes they were forced down. And you see that sometimes in the movies, where they grab them by the shoulders and they <laughs> force them down on their knees. Everybody is going to bow voluntarily or involuntarily, but they are going to bow. And they're going to declare that God is Lord. Now, only God could manage that. And only God could make that happen. Okay, especially when he's talking to Satan, whose last thing he's going to do is say he's Lord, and it will be the last thing he says he to God. And he's going to bow, and he's going to declare he is, he is Lord, he is God, as he's cast into eternal punishment. And just an amazing thing. And then it ends in verse 17 on this section. Then the lambs feed in their manner in the waste places, and the fat ones shall strangers eat. In other words, prosperity. God brings prosperity. And you know, this is something that is very true. He is going to give us prosperity. Oftentimes in this world, he gives us as a prosperity because of our contentment. And you know, the greatest thing about prosperity is, a, is to be content. I can be content with lots of, lots of stuff or little stuff. And if I'm content with little, then I'm prosperous. I've got everything I need. I'm, I'm happy and I'm prosperous. Yeah, not the world's. Not the world's definition of prosperity. The world's definition of prosperity is I have so much money in the bank that I never have to worry about anything. The only thing is there's no such thing. Every wealthy person worries about how am I going to get more money? How much is enough money? Well, somebody else has more money than I do. I don't I don't have enough. 
And if we're not careful, that's exactly what it is. I can't remember who it was, but back in the 1800s, they asked one rich guy, you know, how much is enough money? He goes, just a little more. You know, one of the richest men in the world, just a little more. Just a little more. I need a bigger house. I need a nicer, ni nicer transportation. I need a few more, few more cattle on the field. I need a few more stops on my train, my train routes. I need a few more, you know, a few more of this, a few more of that, just a little more. And it never is going to be enough. Without God, it will never be enough. Without God, we're not going to be happy. And they can be, otherwise they're just going to be envious. I want more. I want more. I want more. And the same thing with the rich person. They want more. Unless it's with God. All of this comes down to how are we looking at things? Are we looking at it with the blessing that God has given us and happy with it? And if you can learn to be content with nothing and truly stay content with nothing, God will probably give you much as long as you stay content with God being that. But I've also seen wealth be the ruin of so many people that said they were Christians. They served God and did things for God and then they started getting stuff. And the stuff takes them away from God. And this is, again, where is your contentment? Is it in God or is it in the stuff? And this can happen even in spiritual things. Sometimes people want more and more spiritual gifts. And then they get the gifts and they take their eyes off God and think, okay, God, look at, look at this. I can pray for people and they get healed. I can pray in tongues. I can do this. I can do that. And they start forgetting that God is the giver and pull away from God. All of this comes down to, do I stay focused and content with God? Am I looking at the giver or am I looking at the gifts? And that can be spiritual gifts, physical gifts, anything. Am I looking at the giver or the gifts? And we're going to close there. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to go with us as we go about doing things. Help us to see you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.